Hello everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of The Center Project. Today I have a guest named Mac Turner. Mac Turner, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, hi. My name is Matt Turner. I'm uh, majoring in economics and music at the University of Florida, and uh, I plan to do a career in uh, international intelligence. Hey, that's awesome, man. So first thing, obviously, I want to ask is um, a political figure that you believe best aligns with your views. I know you said Ben Shapiro. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody has their issues with Ben Shapiro. I personally have plenty of disagreements with him, but overall, I think that he is um, the best conservative voice that aligns with my with my views at the current political you know sphere right now. Mm hmm. And so you, you mentioned that like conservative views. So what are like some of your most um, like um, cherished, I guess, conservative views that you strongly identify with? Okay. So um, one of them is the economy. You know, I align mm -hmm. a lot with conservative conservatism on uh, supply side economics and uh, cutting taxes mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I'm uh, pro-life, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that mm -hmm. and uh, just certain beliefs like that. All right. So right now we the Republican candidate for presidency is Donald Trump, but um, people always have like a stark difference between like a Trump Republican and then a Romney or a John McCain Republican. So which uh, republic if there first of all, if you think there is a difference and if you do think there is a difference, which type of re Republican do you identify yourself as? Right. So I think that there is a big difference between uh different views on the right as you know you know that uh, Mitt Romney voted for impeachment on Donald Trump back uh, mm. I think that was this year even which kind of shows yeah. how much has happened this year it was still I believe in January so it shows that there is a large diversity of thought on the right and so I would align myself more with Mitt Romney I would say I'm a little bit to the right of Mitt Romney but definitely not to the extent of Donald Trump mm. so I would say that I did vote for Donald Trump. I didn't vote for Joe Biden and I didn't vote mm -hmm. for a third party candidate. I know that there are a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, that want to be kind of quirky and vote for uh, Joe Jorgensen. But, <laughs> you know, I, I don't believe that that was the, the right choice. But um, overall, I think that Trump aligns with my views more than Joe Biden does. So that's why I voted for Donald Trump. But uh, overall, I think that he is a little bit more to the extreme that I would call myself. There are plenty of things, mm. plenty of things that I'm sure we'll get into that I disagree with on Donald Trump's policy and primarily his rhetoric. But overall, I did. I voted for Donald Trump and I would say that I'm to the left of him, but not on the left of American politics. Mm, yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. Um, so I guess like let's just straight jump into like specific policy. So. Uh, you mentioned pro-life. Now, does that stem from like um, a perspective of like science or life, do you see, or is that from a religious background? Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with religion because mm. um, you've made a point on this show before that I agree with, which is that um, you believe in the separation of church and state. So um, mm -hmm. something that I disagree with about Mike Pence is that when he goes on and says that he's pro-life and cites the Bible as the answer to that. Well, the bottom line is that a lot of people in this country are not religious. So if you're trying to sort of convince them to be pro-life by citing the Bible in which they don't believe in, then that doesn't necessarily do anything. So right. I wouldn't say that it's because of any religious belief. I think that it's more of a philosophical question of anything than um, it's kind of the question of what life is and mm -hmm. when it specifically begins. And so that is, that's my stance. Mm -hmm. 
So um, do you believe it's like at the moment of fertilization or do you believe it happens sometimes during the three um, stages of pregnancies? So I personally think that it starts right at conception, that um, when you have something that has unique DNA from anything else, it might be might be reliant on the mother uh, mm. to a certain extent. But if it has something that is independent of any other body, that it is in itself a, a life. But when it comes down to policy, I think that it's a different issue. So I think mm. that when it comes down to third trimester abortions, I know that you've you've talked about this a little bit, that yeah. it is, you know, basically a life, you know, if it can survive outside of the womb by itself, then it's most definitely a life. Now, there are also yeah. studies that come down to, I believe it's anywhere between 20 and 28 weeks of development, mm -hmm. then the fetus can feel pain, which I think, you know, if you're pro-life or pro-choice, I think that anybody should be able to agree that if that thing can feel pain, regardless of what you want to call it, it's unethical mm -hmm. to cause pain to something that hasn't necessarily done anything to the world, hasn't caused anything that would, uh, that would deserve that. But I think when it comes down to first trimester, when the life of the mother is not in danger, and for all of this, this is overall, if the life of the mother is in danger, I think that you know certain precautions need to be made to protect the life of the mother over anything else. Mm -hmm. But for first trimester, I think that it should go down to the states. You know, I don't necessarily like the idea of the federal government having this standard for everybody. I think that the states should be able to decide for first trimester, even though I mm -hmm. personally believe that first trimester is, uh, is unethical. All right. So like to the woman who um, uh, make the argument that um, the other side of abortion is that you are kind of controlling one's a woman's life because at the end of the day, uh, the fetus is tied to like his mother. So even if you're pro-life, you have to admit that um, like it is the mother's body. It's and you can admit it's a separate life and it has its own like autonomy, but it is like connected to the mother. So um, what would what, what's your like general response to like the woman who's saying that oh it's my body so it's my choice right so what I would say to that is that it's not their body it is the body of a separate life and so just because it is attached to your body doesn't necessarily mean that you should be able to dictate what you do to that life so I you know like I said if it threatens the life of the mother then I think that mm. the mother's life should be prioritized but you know, if you look at how they actually execute um, third trimester abortions, you know, they take tongs and they have to remove limbs from the fetus, you know, and they have to take mm. the skull and they have to crush it and, and suck it out with a vacuum, you know. And so if you're saying that a woman's rights are being threatened when a baby is being, you know, mutilated in that way, then I don't think that that's really the ethical choice to make. Mm. All right. That, that's definitely interesting. Um, but um, I do appreciate the point that you hit on that, uh, you know, the separation of state and church and that even though you personally disagree with even first trimester abortions, that should be left up to the states. I think uh, that's like should be a key point in like for many people is that, you know, you don't necessarily have to believe in something, but you have to recognize that it's you're not the only person alive and that it's up to, you know, the states and the federal government. Um but yeah, yeah, and I, I think I, um, if mm -hmm. I could elaborate a little bit more on that, I think that mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily help to the political tensions either, because if you look at the left and uh, if the right is making the argument that this is my religion and then you have to follow it because of my religion, 
then mm-hmm. they see that as a power grab. You know, they're doing something because they want to do it, not because it's best for everybody. So, yeah, I, I just think that that argument overall, if they're trying to talk to people on the other side of the aisle, is not a good argument to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's move on. So um, another big content uh, issue like in the country is the issue of gun control. You know, um, a couple of years back, we had the issue in Stoneman Douglas, which is in my county. So it was like a very like personal attack for me, regardless of whichever side of the aisle you on. That was a horrific, horrific thing. So, uh, you know, because of the many school shootings, do you believe that having more guns in schools makes schools safer or having more restrictions on guns uh, would eventually lead to less like predators and domestic terrorists possessing guns and less crime. So what do you think it would benefit the cases or worsen it? So overall, I do think that more guns would be better, but more guns in the right hands. So mm-hmm. um, what we had at, you know, at my high school is that we had a police officer that was there that was always on patrol, especially after these shootings were going on. But he mm-hmm. was uh, he was retired and he wasn't very well trained. I don't think overall, I don't know, there were some suspicions going on with him. But I think that overall it would be best to have some trained professionals and we could get into, you know, talk about police reform too. But having mm-hmm. better training for police officers that are there and protecting students uh, there's also the argument out there that teachers should be able to um, to carry guns. I think mm-hmm. that some people misconstrued that as teachers are going to be forced to have guns on campus. And I don't think that that's a good idea because some of my teachers um, don't think <laughs> I don't think they're in the right mental state to be yeah, having guns. Yeah, for sure. But to have the to to have the possibility of them having guns, I think is a good thing because mm-hmm. if you don't have any guns in any situation, you know, I think that there's a statistic out there that um, 95% of uh, shootings in America take place in gun-free zones. Um, mm. I think it's something like that. Forgive me, I'm doing that off the top of my head, but um, I think that having more guns with trained professionals is the safest option. Mm. So um, I know Joe Biden's current policy and gun reform is that. Um, he doesn't necessarily want to eliminate guns. The two main policies he has is that he wants an assault rifle buyback, which uh, mostly it's like an optional program that if you are if you wish to like give up your gun without losing any capital, you're able to do so. And his other program is to like increase background checks. Um, do you like because it sounds like that you do still want like uh, guns to be handled more carefully? So would you think like those two policies would be? beneficial or would those two policies would end up just hurting people's ability to bear a firearm? I definitely agree with the stance that he has on um, on background checks. Now, a lot of people mm-hmm. on the right will say that that is a slippery slope argument where if everybody has a background check, then it's more in the system. So it's easier if somebody else were to have a policy to take away guns, then everybody knows who has the guns to take away. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm lukewarm to that argument, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think that background checks are good. It would be good to have a system where people know who has, you know, guns, because that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so overall, I would agree with that. I think that a big issue about gun control is more on the issue of mental health. Um, another thing that some people on the right side with and some people don't is the issue of uh, red flag laws, where if there are um, enough complaints of somebody that is not necessarily mentally stable or they might have the potential of doing something that's that's dangerous with a gun, then you can have that right taken away. 
And uh, that's something that I agree with. So, um, yeah, Joe Biden is OK on uh, on that stance. I know that some uh, some interviews he has talked about wanting to take away people's guns outright uh, in the Democratic debates. You know, we talked about that a little bit. He talked about wanting to have Beto O'Rourke be in charge of, uh, of that kind of area of policy, yeah. which I think is not a good idea. But overall, I agree with with some parts of that. Yeah, um, actually, an interesting fact is that the NRA gave Joe Biden an F rating, which kind of surprises me because I definitely know a lot more, you know, Democrats or leftists who are definitely a lot harsher on guns for better or worse, but they're a lot, lot harsher on guns and want much, much stronger gun control. So it's kind of interesting to me that they gave him an F rating because how do you like what like do you give everybody like the same, you know, uh, like, what if, like, it's a lot worse than Joe Biden? Is Do they still get the same F rating? So it's kind of interesting to me because um, where I do agree that, yes, uh, Joe Biden, like, is definitely for more gun control compared to many people. Um, but I don't think he is the worst. You know, I think he's trying to, like, Biden, I think for most of his policies, trying to play this, like, managing both sides kind of game, which, like, may work out or may not. But um, that was just, like, an interesting fact to me that they gave him an F rating. But, yeah, it's interesting. I uh, mm-hmm. I actually didn't know that. So that's yeah. interesting. Um, but so, uh, so the topic you touched on was mental health. I think that's very interesting. So we're gonna like take that and go with it. So, um, police brutality. Now there is, um, two sides of the argument, obviously, but there is multiple aspects to it. So the first aspect is whether police brutality exists. The second aspect is if it exists, if it's racially charged, you know, if it's not like the same across the board, um, if it is racially charged, then how can we prevent it? You know, is it the police system that's broken or is it police individuals that take that power and misuse it? And another topic coming off of mental health is that, you know, should we defund the police Um budget and instead fund mental health services so that if you go into a situation you can have a mental health um healthcare provider with you so they can analyze the situation so we'll go like one by one to all the topics so first of all in general do you think police brutality exists do you think there's a disproportionate amount of attacks perpetuated by the police on american citizens okay so Yeah. So for the first question, I do believe that police brutality exists. If you look at, um, you know, various videos that have just come out recently, you look at Mm -hmm. George Floyd and a lot of these unfortunate incidents, obviously police brutality does exist. There are those bad apples in uh, police organizations that sometimes it's because they lack the proper training. But in the case, obviously, of George Floyd, it was somebody that Uh, was not in the right mental state. And Mm. I think that anybody that does that, obviously there are laws that, that, um, that can actually cut against that. Um, And if you look at, let's see, what was that qualified immunity, you know, that kind of helps police, you know, get off the hook. Sometimes I think that that could potentially be rolled back because police brutality is an issue and it needs to be addressed and people need to be arrested if they do police brutality. Now, on the issue of uh, racially charged, I think that there is some evidence. There is um, FBI crime statistics and I believe a study out of Yale that showed that police are more likely to uh, use force against minority communities Mm -hmm. and minorities in general. But if you look at um, actually police shooting, then um, 
blacks are less likely to be killed if you relate to the crime rate. So I don't think that there is evidence of systemic racism within the police system. But I do mm-hmm. think that, you know, if there's um, if there's a police brutality issue, then those people need to be prosecuted and, and put in jail. And also. Um, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, just overall, I think that. Um, yeah. So sorry, I was thinking of your your third question. So talking about mm-hmm. defunding the police. So I think that a lot of people talk about two different things. They talk about funding the police because they need more training. You know, there are people that always Mm -hmm. talk about how in other countries, sometimes they require a college degree for police officers. But then there's also the other argument that says that we need to defund the police, which a lot of people on the right misconstrued to mean, you know, somehow the left wants to punish the police by not giving them as much money. I don't think that that's true. They want to put that money towards social workers, right? So that's really defunding the police. So I find it hard to make both of those arguments at the same time. And I think a lot of people do try to do that. They want to defund the police Mm -hmm. to put more resources towards social workers, but they also want to fund the police so that there's more training. So I don't think that you can accomplish the goal that you want to accomplish by uh, doing both of those at the same time. I think that there should Mm -hmm. be increased funding to the police overall, because the bottom line is that there isn't enough training for police. If you look at statistics for American police officers versus any other country. Mm. We have less training. I think sometimes it's as little as six months for training. So I think that there needs to be increased funding for the police for to provide for social workers that are within the police system and also to to fund, you know, police training and body cameras and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think like um, I see your point. But um, to me, so you mentioned how like it's hard to do both things. I think uh what a lot of Democrats uh, want to, uh, the plan they have in mind is basically that the police right now has have too many responsibilities. So not only do they have to like deescalate the situation, but they also have to like, in case of things go wrong, they have to like uh, pursue uh, the person and they just have a lot of responsibilities that putting on a single person's shoulder can often overload them. So what they're trying to say is when you defund the police, it's not necessarily um that you defund the training is that you remove certain aspects of the training right because now you have other people who can assist you on the job so for de-escalating situations and um you know in situations where uh there is somebody who's not in the best mental health state capacity whether like for example if somebody is trying to hurt themselves right you call the police whereas instead you should be able to call a mental health care provider or even if you have a police they should bring along somebody um with the correct licensing and stuff that can help de-escalate the situation. So I think like when they defund the police, it's not, you know, and you defund these training programs and you remove certain aspects of it. The key point that the key thing to making it work is that they also remove the responsibilities that come with it. So now they only have to do certain things, which is just policing, you know, just like in case the things go wrong, that they're there and that's all they need to be trained for. They don't, because um, it's happened to me where like I've seen, uh, you know, um, police come to de- de-escalate situations and they often don't really understand because they're not rightfully trained or if they have been, they have been trained like not very well. So they just completely remove that aspect. You have an other personnel. So it's just, that's, I think what they kind of mean, not necessarily defund the training program and then expect them to do the same responsibility. It's defund the training program, take away those responsibilities and it kind of like manages out. You kind of get what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand that. And I could see the appeal to social workers overall, because, you know, the mm-hmm. bottom line is if 
somebody has a psychological breakdown on the street, you know, a homeless person or anybody, and it looks like they're a threat to other people, you know, a cop with a gun, you know, coming in is not the best solution. You know, the best solution mm -hmm. would be a social worker to come and kind of use that kind of risk management to those people. Um, mm -hmm. So I could see that the appeal to that argument. So they take away some training for police officers that have to work with those types of issues and give it to yeah. social workers. But I also think that there does need to be better training in terms of um, in terms of just things that police officers would would be in charge of, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, better uh, gun control and and issues. Yeah, like no, that. I, I definitely agree. Um, I think like. Uh, the training does need to be revamped uh, and you know there needs to be like a lot of different mandates and checks you know mental health checks um background checks like much stronger because um clearly obviously not all police um uh, but there are definitely some policemen who are not in the best mental state health capacity and also uh you know statistics have found that um policemen in general i forgot the exact percentage but it was a significant like statistically significant amount um higher where they abuse their wives and stuff which is like if you think about it it's like oh you know you know it's it's something that the police officers oh if you're like a police officer you're a bad person i think it's necessarily true but policing is a very very incredibly difficult job and uh it's hard to work at work those hours in in those situations and constantly being put in those difficult situations where oftentimes you're not you know prepared for that you're not trained for that uh, especially for like young officers they're mentally just not in that situation and a lot of the time they release their anger in the wrong ways whether it's by uh shooting somebody who didn't deserve it or whether it's abusing their wife and stuff of course not all police officers are like this but this is like a trend that you see in the general like police board and so i definitely think that there needs to be more training because there are they have too much responsibility you know um i think like there's two aspects to police reform i think for me personally i do think it's racially charged so there is a um a section where they need to be you know um uh training programs which like um introduce like race relations to uh the police and inform them that you know, because the issue with America is that minority communities are policed a lot harder than white communities statistically. So there needs to be some kind of like balance found and there needs to be like information and programs for police officers to go through to train under to understand the race relations in America and the power dynamic. And then separately, there needs to be training programs, first of all, taken away the ones that like give them too many like responsibilities and then the training programs that do apply to them such as like in situations where it goes super hostile or in um you know a situation like that, that to fund those programs so i think that um in general when people say defund the police i think the concept is oh we're just going to lose police personnel or we're just going to lose the effectiveness of police or oh, their salaries are going to go down it's all these concepts when in reality especially for a centrist like joe Biden, right you could make that argument that somebody who's a leftist or a super left might have that viewpoint but some, a person like joe Biden is a centrist i think his more plan is to just shake around the funding because right now the funding is not being used correctly you know if you give somebody police officers the funding all they're doing is just buying more personnel and more personnel and more personnel and that's like more isn't necessarily better right i would rather have a handful of police officers in a single city but they're just amazing at their job 
you know, they know how to, they know exactly the resources to use. They know exactly what situation to use and instead have like, uh, you know, mental health care providers for situations of self-harm or, uh, you know, people work at rehabilitation centers for like, you know, uh, drug offenses, things like that. And I think in general, that'll make societies, especially minority communities who are disproportionately affected by it a lot better. Yeah. And that's, that's an issue that you, uh, touched on a little bit where defunding the police could contribute to wages going down within police mm. officers. So I don't think that that needs to happen. Like you said, you know, that's mm. not necessarily what might happen, but if it does, I don't think that that's going to help at all because what happens is when wages go down, then, you know, there's less of an incentive to become a police officer. Right. Yeah. So, um, and the only people statistically that are left are people that really want to become a police officer. And then it's, a question of, well, you might not have the best intent to become a police officer. So I think if wages are actually raised in funding the police, then you'll have more people that want to become a police officer for the greater good. And I think that defunding the police is only going to make the issue worse if it does affect wages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think like the thing we agree on is that there definitely needs to be better management of the funds, whether it's to extra funding or defunding, but management is key. Am I right? Yeah, I agree with that. Right. Yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, I think like finding the middle ground sometimes in like times like this is so important, but, um, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So one other thing, um, I wanted to touch on is environment, right? Um, so, so far we've definitely disagreed on a lot of things, but, um, environment is something that is a very interesting to me because one of the sides and, Again, like of course, like I'm will uh, I'm always open to hearing both sides. From from my perspective, uh, you know, environment is a scientific thing. I think like with pro life, you can argue morality. Um, with gun control, you can argue statistics. But for environment, for me, is a simple case of science versus not science. So, it, what do you think is um, the urgency to implement environmental policies? Do you think it's somebody like the Republican side where um, coal mining and fracking and all of these things should not be banned because they will affect the jobs and economy, even though it, it's risking the environment. Do you think it's somewhere like a middle ground, like Joe Biden, where he has a Green New Deal, but not really? He has like a very um, underfunded Green New Deal. So he does have like, he wants to continue fracking, but eventually slow it down. He does want to envir implement environmental um, source, like environmental friendly sources of energy, but at a slower pace or somebody like, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who she has like really, really um, high funded um, Green New Deal, which is just immediate implementations. So which do you think, which side do you think like has the best scenario or the best response? Right. So, um, yeah, if I could just make something really clear right here, mm -hmm. just out in the open, 100%, I do believe in climate change. I do believe that that's real. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes talking about the, uh, the extent of it, the science can be a little bit mixed. People talking about, um, you know, AOC famously said, I think that was a couple of years ago that we have 12 years. You know, I don't think that that's necessarily true, but the science is very clear that it is an issue that is being caused by man-made carbon production. And it's an mm. issue that needs to be addressed. And I think it's also an issue that um, President Trump has failed to to address, you know, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. 
He's primarily focused on jobs and the economy, but I think that there does need to be a switch over to nuclear energy, which is something that people don't really talk a lot about, but it's slowly gaining momentum. A lot of people say that there are health issues, but, you know, the science has changed a lot since then. There, um, there's a much less probability that there's going to be an issue like uh, Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. So I think that nuclear energy is an option that really needs to be looked at, but I think that Joe Biden's plan is too much of a government overreach. So a lot of the right that does believe that climate change exists, which is a lot of the right, that um, is that there's going to be a market solution to a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a little bit of progress on that, but not enough for me to be completely satisfied yet. So I think that Mm -hmm. overall Trump needs to do a little bit more. Well, obviously we might not see because he's most likely not going to be president again. But but I do not like uh, Joe Biden's plan overall. All right. Um, so moving on, we have, uh, so healthcare is currently a big, um, topic in America, especially with the democratic party, because you have, um, two, basically the the two sides of the democratic party, right? So you have a lot of Sanders supporters, a lot of AOC supporters and people who are on the more left side of the already left wing spectrum. And they want to have, uh, uh, M4A Medicare for all, which is, you know, hundred percent government socialized healthcare. Whereas you have somebody like, uh, you know, more moderates like Joe Biden uh, who want to have kind of like, you know, again, like this is something you constantly see with Joe Biden for better or worse. Right. I've heard like both good and bad sides of it, but he always tries to play this like center middle game. And it's the same with healthcare is that um, he wants to have like obviously a, a affordable care act or Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, still available. So you have the public option, but you also still have private companies competing and you know driving down the costs um and then obviously you have in the republicans and the uh right wing who want to completely abolish a public option and just have that uh private companies just rely on markets competing and um bringing down the costs so um which again like same thing which do you side kind of for the moderate the right or the left side of the argument what do you think is the best because clearly right now whatever the healthcare is uh, plans are currently implemented or not good because they're trying to be, like there's ACA exists but it has all these amendments and mandates that are put in by the Republican Party so neither option is working because they're just trying to like outcompete each other and the only person losing in that isn't your average American citizen so there needs to be reform how do you think that reform should take place I would say that I find myself uh, somewhere between the right and the left on this I think Mm -hmm. that this is actually another thing (laughs) you're hitting all of them. Another thing that I take issue with the Trump administration is that they haven't shown a comprehensive healthcare plan. You know, they've talked Mm -hmm. about reducing drug prices and protecting people with preexisting conditions. But as far as having a comprehensive healthcare, you know, plan, like a lot of people on the left have, I think that um, he's ultimately missed the mark. So, I agree with you completely that the current system is crap, right? The current Mm. system is not good. It needs to be reformed. There needs to be changes. So now it's just a question of should they be market-based changes or government-based changes? So what Joe Biden is talking about right now, like you said, is is, uh, talking about Obamacare and expanding Obamacare. And I don't necessarily like that idea. I think I would be more in favor of a market-based solution. But like I said, there's... Mm. There's not a mainstream market-based solution out there right now, which I would I would like to see. Um, so the issue with expanding Obamacare that I can see is that if there is a public option, 
that is remains you know cheap practically free because of government sub subsidies and government intervention mm -hmm. that creates a slippery slope that can be dangerous because if one healthcare insurance system is being given all of these government handouts to be ultimately cheaper then a lot of people are going to end up using that system because the government is taking care of it so i think that that's mm. a slippery slope into medicare for all it's um kind of messes up the private industry because they're having to compete with a system that uh you know in my view basically cheats right they cheat the system because they're getting assistance from the government so mm. i think that that's a slippery slope i would like to see market-based solutions i think another issue with a lot of um with a lot of the system in healthcare is a lack of competition. I know that um, I saw it a couple of months ago that uh, Walmart was talking about getting into the healthcare industry. I think that that would be a great thing if they yeah. got into the industry, you know, provided a little bit more competition to drive oh, down man. prices. Can you imagine but... great value healthcare? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it would be, uh, be really cheap. I would tell you that much. <laughs> I don't know but, if I uh... trust it, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, overall, I think that a market-based solution would be the best way, but I haven't seen a practical solution yet out of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, kind of like it's like relates to healthcare. So the price of insulin, like that's something that's kind of used to talk about the over general problem of the prices of drugs in America, right? Uh, the same drugs that are sold here, you know, they have the same content, same percentages are much, much cheaper in Canada, Europe, you know, other first world developed countries. And unlike, you know, socialized healthcare, big pharma right now is basically does not have any governmental restrictions. It's kind of a lot. They're, they're trying to do that. Obviously, that's one of AOC's biggest, you know, uh, thing. But right now it's kind of they're just it's left up to the market. And right now, because of that, you're seeing these insane like price hikes in insulin and other drugs you know uh, my mom and my dad are both diabetic so i know what their healthcare, even with insurance right their drug costs look like it creates like a big burden on you know your average american citizens your middle class american citizens who have these pre-existing conditions who need these drugs to like quite literally survive so do you think that um you know because there there is a side of argument that um, big pharma became big pharma because of these markets, because, you know, no government regulation allowed these companies to basically just price increase and price increase. Or do you think this is just an isolated situation? It does not apply to markets in general. It's just, you know, big pharma specifically. So what do you think, like, is your, what's your opinion on that? No, I definitely think that this is, um, that this is still an issue and mm. something that is kind of my bird's eye view about, capitalism and the system in general is that capitalism is something that is natural. It's something that is good, but it's also something that is unstable. So if you have mm. something like insulin, which I think can, can still be reverted back to uh, an issue of a lack of competition, is that mm. sometimes there does need to be a government intervention to ensure that that nobody has a monopoly over, over resources so that there's competition that drives down prices and ultimately makes things better for everybody. So I think that that's, that's the main issue with that. And um, I think it needs to be addressed. And yeah, that's my opinion. So right now, the whole issue with insulin is that like you have like, it's not that you only have one company making insulin, you do have multiple companies, but they're kind of like collectively just increasing the price and it has steadily increased, you know, 
like if somebody's selling it for $88, they're like, oh, you know, I could sell it for $90 and I wouldn't lose that many customers. And they're like, you know what, if you're selling for $90, it's making more profit. Let me sell it for 92 And it can like slowly increase. So do you think in those situations, then government intervention um, is good in cases where like companies are bringing prices up and up and up? Obviously, this is not across the board, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like current event, Xbox and PlayStation, the new consoles are coming out. Um, this week and for in though in that companies and especially in tech in tech you often see like prices being brought down you know um the ps5 and xbox series x for their you know for the technology they have are like pretty cheap because of competition because they're trying to compete each other but then you look at big pharma and they're doing the opposite so do you think in cases like the big pharma is when government intervention is necessary yeah i do and um yeah on the last on the last part when i said that there's a lack of competition that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't enough companies that are in the business, but that those markets aren't behaving competitively. So I think, like you said, something that can help with that is government intervention, maybe to put a price ceiling on it and, you know, some way to create incentives for these companies to behave in a competitive way and not just keep raising prices. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, So another thing I want to touch on healthcare is that, um, so, and this is not just healthcare. I think it applies to a lot of different social programs, including education. So uh, what you mentioned is that, of course, if you have this government option that's giving you very, very cheap or basically free healthcare, you're going to have more and more uh, people enroll into that. So it was, you know, a lot of people say that, and, and this is something that I personally support, um, instead of M4A, what if you had a program that specifically is for you know, and which kind of already exists, like Medicare already exists, Medicaid already exists, but it targets communities or it targets social groups where they are underfunded, where, you know, if you're making like 400, 500K, having the cost of drugs is going to be no problem to you, right? You're going to live comfortably. Um, but if you are making like, you know, 40K, 50K, those prices can definitely impact your well-being. So what would what's your opinion on having a, Affordable Care Act for and like not just that, but also like um, scholarships or which, you know, FAFSA already exists, but having like two years free college or even four years free college, but only for communities who are only for like households who earn below a certain income. Hmm. That's an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so. Overall, if you're talking about free college, which I know is that's not what you're talking about, you're talking mm. about something that's much more moderate. But like scholarships, yeah, yeah. But something that uh, Andrew Yang said on uh, the Joe Rogan Experience, which I think was really interesting, is that the issue with free college for everybody, which again is not what you're talking about, but if you mm. know, if I could dabble on this a little bit, yeah, yeah, is that what you're finding is that a lot of people are going into college, they're graduating from college with a degree. And then they end up working in a job that doesn't require them to have that degree. I think uh, the mm-hmm. statistic that Andrew Yang used was 40% of people in the market right now are underemployed. So college is not an option that everybody needs, right? It, it mm-hmm. means that there are plenty of jobs out there. And I think in the future when you know automation occurs and there aren't as many jobs that are sort of on that lower level where college is uh, not a necessary option, then I could see actually funding for that. But Mm-hmm. There are so many jobs out there right now that don't require a college degree that um, 
that I don't think that everybody should be pay, paying taxes for only a few people to be going to college and, and filling those jobs. Now, with the issue that you brought with just providing free college to some people, mm-hmm. I think that that through scholarships and other things, that's something that is kind of already happening. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think that primarily it's something that's already happening through scholarships. You know, you can give out scholarships for being from certain communities and having Mm. Uh, certain talents. So I think it's it's something that already exists. I think it's something that can help a lot. So um, that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I think like uh, I think the main like uh, thing with that is because right now, like of course, like FAFSA exists and Bright Futures exists, but there's obviously issues with it. The issue with Bright Futures is that it only targets like very successful students, and you know, you might be just an average student still trying to go to college and still trying to become something. You know, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, average or even an above average student, whereas Brad Features just targets like um, students who have really performed well, which kind of, you know, breaks the purpose of it. Because um, at least so I went to this, I went to, um, you know, kind of an underfunded high school. Right. And uh, from my personal experience, I don't know the statistics on it, but from my personal experience, a lot of the people who performed well in school, who performed well in SATs, didn't necessarily do because they had the most motivation or, uh, you know, they were the smartest. They did that because they just had the best resources, right? So the people who, you know, were able to get these SAT programs or these SAT courses or have private tutors, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, a lot of them who didn't even have to work a job because their family was able to provide for them comfortably. They ended up having the better scores, which then leads to them getting bright features, which then kind of leads to, you know, this like, helping the people who don't need it but leaving that are funded now fafsa is one thing that i agree um is genuinely like really really amazing you know it's something i use it's something many of my friends use that i can like say personally that i wouldn't be able to go to college without without with without bright features too but without also fafsa so um i think like to me it's just like yeah it's continued doing what you're doing with fafsa but obviously expanded because um Without my bright features, I don't think, or my other scholarships, I don't think I'd be able to attend college because, uh, you know, what FAFSA does is that it pays like the bare, bare minimum amount of credits. And sometimes it doesn't even pay all of your credits, but, and you're often left with like, you you know, a lot of college kids still have to contribute to their family and stuff. So I, I think it's like, it's not, it shouldn't be like school where it's mandatory for people to attend to college. You know, you still have the option and I agree with you where I think a lot of vocational training schools should be more funded, you know, electrical engineering, uh, you know, just like um, coding specific, you know, things that are more geared toward a special task rather than going through four years of college and taking art history, even though you'll never like study art. So I agree that there should be more options, but I do think there should be options. Like options is key, right? So I think like FAFSA should be more funded and, it should be able to provide for you know all the supplies and all the uh, all the schools all the credits a comfortable you know at least the first two years that's what i think should start with you know in the future as you said like with jobs changing and becoming more complex maybe it has to be expanded but right now like it should be two years and um after you get that two years education you know it's your choice but you should be able to go to college for two years if it's your choice comfortably and you should also have more options of vocational training schools those should be funded as well so that's kind of where i stand do you kind of agree disagree uh yeah so to your point that does make a lot of sense and it's something that i've never really thought of before is that Mm -hmm. if there's a way to measure 
the amount of effort that somebody has put into something and give mm-hmm. scholarships based off of that, then I think that that would be really beneficial. You know, if you have somebody yeah. who unfortunately just, you know, wasn't born with, um, with, you know, the most, uh, the highest IQ, you know, just happened to be that way, but they tried really hard and they tried to mm. get the best scores that they could. If there was a metric that could be used to measure that, I think that those mm. people deserve, you know, the highest scholarships. That makes sense to me. But the problem is actually being able to measure that. So, you know, if there was a system that was able to measure that, I think that that would be good, but I, I can't really see something that would be able to mm. find definitively how much effort that you've put into something. The closest thing that we found, you know, is a meritocracy, which just shows if you have the highest score, then you yeah. have probably put in the most effort. So if there was, a, like, there was a system that did, did that, then that would be nice. I think like, um, I know the SAT tests, they had it a new metric added where it was, they were kind of showing the income of a student. And I know that having like econ- income and motivation and IQ, all these things aren't like perfectly, you know, co- linearly related, but I think there's a big relation in that. And because I like, yes, um, IQ is uh, definitely a, a thing, obviously, but I think that, and you know, this might like come as like an interesting approach, but I think your economic status pays, is just as much impactful on your scores as your IQ level. And the reason I'm saying that is because like from what I have like learned is that, and this is something you look at statistics, right? The SAT scores significantly change. Like there is like statistically significantly change every single uh, income level that you look at, right? So if somebody's earning 50K, they earn a, a, a specific SAT score. If you go to 75K, they will always score a few points higher on average across the US. Like that's what the new metric showed. So it showed like a clear relationship between your metric scores and your uh, income level. So I think like the uh, system, what I'm arguing for is you can't really measure motivation, but you could measure like economic circumstances, right? If you know a person whose family is earning like, let's say 30K, right? There's people who are living that, who's in a minority uh, a, a neighborhood um, who's like come from like harsh circumstances and they are scoring the same person is the same score as another person who is earning over $300,000. Uh, his family is living super, super comfortably and stuff that should indicate, like, I think that should indicate, you know, which uh, student put the most motivation. Of course, it's not a hundred percent accurate, but you know, statistically, more way more more chances that you can tell easily that oh that kid was more motivated also especially because he was able to use the minimal resources he had and make the most out of it right so he's either motivated or very very intelligent in allocating his resources and budgeting his time either way he would be the preferred candidate right and you know a lot of like this is something SAT is obviously trying to change but before SATs didn't have that and ACTs didn't have that and you'd see these like top college preparatory schools, um, you know, these people having perfect SAT scores, but then they would go to college and they would, you know, invest their time into like fraternity houses and so, which is nothing wrong with that, but they would, you know, divulge from like the academia. Whereas somebody who is, you know, didn't have the highest SAT scores, but they struggled and, you know, they made the most out of the work they're going to, you know, they can't even afford to go to community college, even though they're like, you know, academia. So I think like, that's the thing is just that, you metrics alone like um 
your academic performance alone right now is very, very heavily weighed, especially because of these standardized tests. You know, there's nothing standardized about these standardized tests, right? I wish there was, but at the end of the day, standardized tests don't really check your IQ. They just check, uh, you know, how much resources you have. That's that's honestly what I think they check the most. And, you know, this is statistically proven and stuff that there was the correlation between uh, the there's like they tested a bunch of different things, like what like affects SAT scores the most. And the thing they found the most was economic background. So to me, like that's kind of what I was trying to say is that that's something we should counter and that you should always have a two year option for the underfunded uh, for the people who don't have the resources. Right. Um, and expand FAFSA and give those resources to them if they choose to go to academia. Right. Um, of course, there should also be option for vocational schools and stuff but that's what my metric would be to see like motivation versus iq does that kind of make sense yeah that makes a lot of sense and i I do have a lot of appeals to that argument but um and that's also a reason why i'm really in favor of uh donald trump's you know school choice you know people should be able to choose which schools that they want to go to instead of relying on these public schools which are funded primarily by property taxes and that's mm-hmm. another thing. I don't think that public schools should be funded by property taxes because that, you know, contributes to the wealth gap where poorer communities have that less property with. taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, a video out there trying to explain uh, systemic racism, you know, that went viral a couple of months ago. And they, they talked about that. But it's more mm-hmm. of an issue of wealth inequality where if you're in any, you know, if you're of any race in that situation, then you're going to be affected uh, by the same way. So I yeah. think that what you're talking about and making these adjustments to standardized testing to take into account, you know, different economic positions. I think that in my personal opinion, that's more of putting a bandaid on an issue instead of, instead mm. of curing the disease, so to say. So mm. I think that we need to look more at creating equal opportunity for people. Like you said, you know, you cited some statistics that make a lot of sense mm. where uh, people in these poorer communities are not given the same access to educational you know, the same educational standards. So I think that that needs to be corrected and give people an equal opportunity instead of creating at the very end of their educational experience to create an equal outcome for everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I I, I agree with you completely. Um, I think like um, the whole public schools being funded by property tax, like, um, so I was born and raised in Dubai and that's just not a thing there. Um, All public schools are just funded by the federal government. All private schools are funded by private, you know, schools themselves, obviously. And that's like really it. So to me, it's like, I don't, it's a very interesting topic because obviously then the rich neighborhoods will have, you know, rich schools will produce, you know, have higher resources, will produce better scores. And it just, it's just like a thing that's so obviously creating a divide. And I agree with you that there should be like a different way to fund these schools and stuff. Because if you think about it, the schools in underfunded minority neighborhoods in impoverished neighborhoods, they're the ones who need the help the most. Yeah, they're the ones who are getting the least help. So it's kind of very like and weird and interesting to me. But yeah, that's something I definitely agree on. But yeah, like more options, more scholarships. I think like it's it's super important because I think like you know um, a lot of people like in the right believe, and this is something I agree with, is that you know it's not you shouldn't be handed free things, right? You shouldn't be handed like a lot of socialized things just handed to you. But if you are willing to work for it, everybody should have an equal opportunity. And that is something I genuinely uh, like heavily identify with that. Like, and this is something why, like, I kind of like find myself in the middle of situations because 
I agree that like, you know, something socialized definitely helps, right? But I think that your economic background, your parents' income should not be something that's stopping you from succeeding in life. And there are definitely a lot of like barriers and stuff. And you're right that, you know, putting a bandage on these things won't help. You have to like systemically change these things. And that's, you know, that's kind of a lot of people, you know, whether you agree systemic racism or agree or not, this is kind of where a lot of people bring systemic racism on because yes, in those minority communities, of course, there's white people, right? There isn't a hundred percent thing, you know, uh, that, or nobody says that white people don't struggle. Of course they struggle. It's that, you know, in minority communities are primarily, as I said, minorities. Impoverished communities, like statistically, because of, you know, hundreds of years of slavery and, you know, shifting the, um, you know, generational wealth for, you know, like you didn't pay like the African-Americans and their families and their lineages, you know, for generations, any money. And that that wealth was shifted towards white people. Um, and now you're in a situation where most of minority communities, most of underfunded communities are made of minorities. And then you have all these different, you know, issues going on, you know, such as funding schools based on property taxes, which is, you know, putting them, giving them for uh, under, you know, under, re- under resourced communities are getting like even further less resources. And you have other things that are funded by property tax, which are, you know, again, underfunded. Then you have issues with minority communities being policed more, you know, because, you know, and it's a personal experience, but it's also like statistically proven is that white Americans and black Americans don't necessarily commit crimes at different rates. You know, that's like something that a lot of people touch on is that, oh, but they commit more crime. That's why they get policed more or into jail more. It's actually not true. You know, um, most of my white friends have dabbled in interesting um, situations where, you know, are the same as like, you know, I haven't seen any difference and statistically there's no difference. Just the thing is that because white communities are in police more, you know, you're not going to find, you know, a rich white kid smoking tree, even though they probably do just because they're in a certain like protected, like they have like, you know, a lot of, uh, in a protected household where it's not policed a lot because it's considered a quote unquote safe neighborhood. But in African-American communities, you know, you can go to years just for smoking some pot. So I think that's where the issue of systemic racism comes from. Obviously, there's police brutality in other situ- cases and stuff. And uh, to me, like, that's why, it, like, they, do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Like, where it kind of stems from? Yeah, I understand. And um, I think that this really comes to the root of the problem between the left and the right, is there is a big disagreement on the definition of systemic racism. So mm-hmm. there are people on the left that say that systemic racism is just, uh, I think what they call in law is disparate impact where if there's a law that creates a different impact on different communities, then there's a deep racial, you know, you know, issue. But then what on the right, what we tend to say is that if there isn't a law that specifically treats communities differently, if you are of any race in a, in a specific situation and that you are treated the same, mm-hmm. by definition, it's not systemic racism. It could be a systemic issue. It could be an issue that can be changed. But to go to the extent of saying that it's racism, I think, is an issue. And what a lot of people will agree on, on both the left and the right, is that history does have consequences. You know, that there are people, you know, in America that have ancestors that were enslaved and obviously are not, um, were not given the same opportunities to develop. You know, there was a video that I think on uh, actually your last, ep- no, episode three, uh, that your guest talked about where uh, there was a person talking about it like a monopoly board. Mm. And so um, how these people have not been given the same um, 
opportunities to advance. But I think to going to the extent of calling it systemic racism is not the same. I think that history does have consequences and that there are changes that can be made to make sure that there is an equal opportunity. But mm. if you can't name a law that treats people of different races differently, I don't think that it would qualify by the rights definition as systemic racism. Yeah, um, I, I kind of see what you mean. I, I guess, yeah, you're right. Whereas there's no like explicit laws that obviously have like, you know, there's not like no separate but equal and uh, all, a specific law stating that racism um, exists or like, oh, this is defined by race and stuff. But there are definitely like laws that disproportionately affect minority communities. African oh, and, uh, and on your point of policing, mm-hmm. um, when what I was thinking about when you were talking about that is, um, I believe it was under Jim Crow, maybe it was just after, but what a lot of communities tried to do is actually get policing out of African-American communities and out of minority mm-hmm. communities in general, because they, you know, quite frankly, didn't cr- care about the crime right there. So I think that more policing across the board is actually better whether it's minority or, or a white community or just a mixed community, I think it's better overall. And talking about the crime rate is a little bit, I think, of uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? So um, it's an issue of are police there more often because they are m- minority communities and then therefore the crime rate is higher or is the crime rate higher, therefore there are more police there to police because the crime rate is higher and they have to address those issues. So Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult to actually go back and see which one came first, if it was the crime rate or the amount of police there. But Mm -hmm. if you look back and see that police actually weren't in those communities very often during Jim Crow and and racist times, then uh, I think you kind of have to go a long way to make that argument. Yeah, I think, I mean, I I see what you mean where like the chicken and the egg scenario, but I think the issue is that, oh, you know, like if one led to the other, because as you have to like so the way to i um tend to explain that is that african american communities like they were originally um policed so much and you know generations of men were put into prison right on s- simple drug crimes right this happened during the jim crow era this also happened during the reagan ad- administration where the whole um pun, pun not intended like crackdown on crack right yeah so they had this whole like situation where they were, uh, you know, um, obviously people, there have been like some evidence, but I'm not too well informed about like whether it was a government thing, but there was a severe influx of um, crack in African-American communities. And then those communities were policed higher. And then those, uh, you know, young men who, you know, obviously they are trying to build that generational wealth, even though they were set back like hundreds of years, they're still like, you know, at some point you have to start to build that wealth you put these young working men into like prisons and then you just perpetuate this, um, um, you know, this like disproportionate economics in white Americans and African-Americans, which is like, that to me is what systemic racism is, right? Like when you don't have a policy explicitly stating, oh yeah, we're going to police black people more. But when you have a policy that's so obviously disproportionately hurts African-Americans more than any other community. So to me, that's what it is. But going back to the point, um, the thing with that is that it's the, what you consider a crime, right? So you have all of these like, uh, you know, African Americans just being put into uh, jails and prisons for years and years, like for five years, ten years. Like even right now, you know, uh, there was this case of a woman put into uh, prison for like I think like five years or something just because she decided to send her girl to another school district because she wanted to get her better schooling. 
it's such a simple thing but you know this US justice system sometimes is so screwed that they don't understand that so i think it's that you can say that there were higher crime rates but what is like higher crime rates right you have to acknowledge that things that were considered crime were perpetually made to be crime and you know this stems from jim crow law right people forget that jim crow was literally like what 80 years ago that's like you know somebody's grandparents somebody's great grandparents right it was yeah. very 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 recent remnants of that obviously like you know still exist and i think that was part of the ex- uh, things that th- part of the remnants is that during jim crow laws things were criminalized that were you know done so more in the african-american community right you have all these like drugs and all these things that were criminalized and yet something like alcohol which is you know uh used more by the white community uh you know white americans and it's not so much prevalent in african americans that was reversed almost immediately right probation was no longer a thing that was back in like 19 early 1900s and then nobody even thought to criminalize alcohol even though like you know scientifically alcohol is a million times worse than wheat right so you have this like disproportionate thing where they specifically criminalized um you know these things that are prevalent in african-american communities whether their intention was to i think it was because it happened during jim crow era and that was like one of the most racist eras in human history whether it happened because of intention or whether even it happened that they didn't intend to but the consequences of that was you know african-american communities get like more of their young men going to jail regardless of whether the intent was there or not that's what the impact was and that's why i think like you can yes there is an argument to be made that oh maybe more crime occurred but it was made so the police system the justice system the laws the things that were illegal it was made so that african americans were disproportionately put in jail right at the end of the day we're all humans right no one person uh, no like you know in if you like compare the average and in the general spectrum you know no one community is more inclined to do more crime like that's like a false narrative right african americans don't necessarily do more crime and stuff if they are in underfunded communities sometimes they have to make end meets and stuff but it is it, the race the race is not a factor which perpetuates criminal activity it's the laws and it's the justice system and it's you know underfunding them and then expecting them to make a living out of $30,000 and then being like hey why are you stealing you know like 400k earning americans criticizing people who are earning 30k and then asking questions like hey why did you steal that you know like tv cuz you can go and get a tv anytime you want but some people can not does it make it right obviously not but targeting and putting them in jail rather than rehab rehabilitation centers rather than teaching them rather than providing the resources that to me is systemic racism does that make sense um i'll be honest um some of it makes sense <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah of course I, no i'm um trying to be civil here though i'm just um mm-hmm. just joking around but um it is important to know when i was talking about the black crime rate and um fbi statistics and stuff i was talking about the rate of violent crime So if you do mm-hmm. talk about broadening the definition of crime, you know, through uh, the war on drugs and stuff like that, then that doesn't necessarily ring true to what I was talking about when I'm talking about mm. the rate of violent crime, but I I do see what you're talking about where uh sometimes there are people with malicious malicious intent when they're talking about issues like that. Mhm. And um and yeah, so I I do agree with you on part of that. Yeah, I think like that's the most important. I think like as long as we can you know both sides you know i don't really consider myself both sides cuz i don't really i'm not really like a super left person but like 
uh, I think as long as sides can agree and move things forward, I think like that's the saving grace of America. That's the beauty and that's the saving grace of America. So, you know, there's definitely things we've both disagreed on, but I, at least like, and you can agree with that. I feel like a lot of things we do agree on and, you know, that's the important part. So speaking of agreement, disagreement, we're like, I usually try to make it an hour and we're kind of past that. So I'm just going to quickly try to talk about the current events, which is obviously the politics. So I want to get like two things from you. One, um, uh, what do you, what is your immediate like thoughts about the election, about the process, about the candidates, about like, do you consider like if Joe Biden is winning or not? And second, if you don't think that Joe Biden has won, uh, like, do you think that like what Donald Trump's, um, legal cases do you think they have some weight to it or is it just for delaying the process like so i just want to hear like what your general thoughts are okay so election night comes around okay so mm. we're all uh watching the tv watching all of the uh the results come in and it looks like everything is going to be favoring trump you know it looks like the polls yeah. were wrong again not only were they wrong but they're more wrong than they were in 2016 so mm. You know, a lot of people went to bed. Obviously, I stayed up until about 3 a.m. waiting for more results to come in. Things were things were looking pretty good for Trump, mm-hmm. you know. But in, in the following days, and we're actually at this point now, um, a lot of the mail-in votes have been coming in, and they came in for Joe Biden. So a lot of media, mainstream media, has projected Joe Biden as the winner. Mm-hmm. So I do not think that Joe Biden is the winner yet. I think that he is going to be. <laughs> But um, right now, you know, for him to give a victory campaign speech last night, I don't think that that's necessarily called for. But there are a lot of people on the right that are saying that this was stolen, you know, away from them and that Joe Biden is not going to be the president. So let me make one thing really clear right here. I think that Joe Biden is going to be the president, but I Mm -hmm. don't necessarily think that he should be celebrating yet. So like you said, there are some legal disputes, you know, lawsuits that I think are going to be filed uh, mm-hmm. when this gets up, uploaded, which I suppose is tomorrow, uh, that are officially going to be uploaded or officially be filed in uh, Pennsylvania, I think in one in Wisconsin, in Arizona. And all the, much all the swing states. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I do think that there needs to be an investigation. I, I think what you'll find is overall, I'm pretty pro-investigation. <laughs> You know, I was mm-hmm. I was for the uh, the Mueller investigation. I was for an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh, you know, when that was going on. Yeah. So overall, you know, right, left and center, I am pro investigation. I think that overall more information is better. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line where I think I start to detach from a lot of people on the right is that I don't think that these investigations are going to amount to anything that is going to change the outcome. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So. I don't overall think that it's good that Joe Biden has been declared the winner yet because there are a lot of votes that haven't been counted and there's a lot of legal dispute that still needs to be made. But also, I don't think that it's going to be enough to change the outcome. So a lot of people on the right that are saying that it's been stolen and that, you know, all of this is uh, is a political hack job. I, I don't really see that. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree on some points. Like, I think them calling Arizona so early was, you know, just stupid <laughs> like if you could yeah you that see, was like, really strange too because yeah, it was that I, I don't know fox news and all of these you mm-hmm. know particularly conservative bias news sources that called it and it was it was really odd so 
Yeah, I, that was that. That's the that's what I was gonna say. Is that I find it really interesting that CNN didn't call Arizona, but Fox News did. And it, it was actually a clip I saw on Twitter where one of the commentators was like, "Oh, you know how they do like where they show like potential. Oh, Trump needs to win this 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 state, Biden needs to win that 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 state." So he was trying to do that, and he was trying to be like, "Oh, so if Trump wins Arizona, then he tried clicking on it multiple times, and he was like, I think the machine is broken.'" The other guy was like, "It's not broken. We just already declared Arizona." And that was like <laughs> such a funny moment because like. You know, it's like I don't know, but I agree. I think um, Trump has a strong shot. By strong, I mean I genuinely think he will most likely win Arizona. But I think like um, just looking at the trajectory, I think Biden's gonna still win PA and Georgia. Obviously, that could change. You're right. There's still like uh, more votes to be counted and stuff. And I kind of agree. The same thing is that I do think there should be more investigation I, I think like if there are lawsuits they should be looked at they should be scrutinized if there's evidence there should be looked at i don't think it's going to amount to anything but if there is something you know because i remember um last year they did a recount in wisconsin and the votes changed by 136 and all these margins even though they're small they're like in the thousands if not tens of thousands so i don't think it's going to like flip any state but i agree i think just for everybody's peace of mind just so you know, um, we don't have any riots or protests. There should be investigation. There should be like a clear investigation, Supreme Court to decide all that fun stuff. Yeah, and the um, same thing happened, uh, you know, in 2000 in Florida, where uh, mm, oh, that was of, interesting. You know, <laughs> Bush v. Gore, and so they did a recount in Florida, or at least part of Florida, and only fluctuated by you know 200 to 300 votes. Yeah. So yeah, I think that Trump has a chance to win Arizona because some of the late breaking, because I believe that Arizona actually reported their mail-in votes first, which were very Biden yeah. heavy. And then they did their same day election day reports, which were more for Trump. So he mm -hmm. might win Arizona. It looks like Trump might win Georgia, even though it did sway towards Biden. Trump was leading by a wide margin. I know on election night, a lot of people were saying, you know, Trump won Georgia. Biden mm -hmm. is up now, but they still have to count uh, military votes, which happened mm -hmm. to swing Trump. Um, so it could be, I don't, necessarily think that it's going to happen but trump could take georgia but you know mm. the fact that biden took pennsylvania is kind of the nail in the coffin yeah i agree um so all right let's assume like the probable scenario so if um joe biden wins do you think that and you know this is something i uh, i've asked a few of my friends too is that i think biden is the first candidate who is like i don't i consider him more centrist than democratic party right i think he is, you know, for, he's not considered very polarizing, but I think when it comes to politics, it can go two extreme ways. I think Biden can be that person which unites the two parties, uh, tries to get these centrist uh, agenda that kind of like both sides can, you know, find some way, like, like we did, you know, both sides can find some middle ground, some, you know, pathway to work where they benefit, you know, a certain communities, certain, you know, provide certain resources, but you also have the economy and you have like all these different things kind of like, working out in the middle you know nobody gets their perfect world but everybody gets a world they can live in does that make sense and or the on the other hand he can just completely you know because uh whether you are for trump or against trump you have to like acknowledge that trump's administration created a huge divide in america that wasn't during romney's election that wasn't during john mccain's election that wasn't existing before right so or it can just further the divide and then it just becomes like, you know, right versus left in the Senate, and which, as we all know, never gets anything done. Like, look at the stimulus package, right? Yeah. Politics never gets anything done, right? So, in your opinion, assuming that Joe Biden wins the election, which side do you, which 
of those two scenarios do you think is going to happen? Um, I would say that Joe Biden has been campaigning a lot on kind of being this unifying figure. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it would benefit him a lot politically to say, oh, well, I'm, I don't care about red states and blue states. I just care about the United States and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you heard his speech. I believe it was last night. He um, a majority of his speech was actually talking about that. Yeah. So I think that it's something that he's going to campaign on. I think it might be something that he tries to do in the first 100 days. But overall, I think he's going to be flanked by uh, some of the members of the radical left that's uh, that's sort of underneath him. You know, Nancy Pelosi kind of tried doing this, trying to be more of a moderate figure. But I think mm-hmm. overall, he's just going to be overrun. I think that Joe Biden is inherently a weak candidate, that he sways kind of every which way, depending on what's beneficial to him politically. I mean, you saw mm-hmm. this about... Um, about fracking, you know, talking about Pennsylvania. It's like every other news conference that he was having an interview, he was going every which way because he Mm -hmm. just wants to do what people will like. So I think that he definitely campaigned on trying to be a unifying figure, but overall he's going to fail. Yeah. I I guess like, uh, we have to wait and see for me, it's like kind of the opposite where like, I do think there's a chance of him failing, but um, I feel like there is like, honestly, like, if somebody like Joe Biden can't do it, it's hard for me to see anybody else. I don't think he has a good chance. I th- I just think he has the best chance. Does that make sense? Like, because you can't have somebody who's super on the right unite because the left is gonna reject it. You can't have somebody like Sanders or AOC unite because the right's right. gonna reject it. And I as I agree with you, I don't think it's a good chance. I think like if history has taught us is that politics is not fun. It's not a good thing. It's just you know. At the end of the day, right versus left only hurts your average citizen, right? You look at the Senate and they're just discussing all these things, trying to like, you know, Dem want a bigger stimulus package, right? Wants a smaller and they're just constantly bickering, bickering. All that leads is that the average American citizen is just waiting on any stimulus package and it's just, you know, hurting. So I agree with you that the it's it's definitely going to be difficult, but I think he, you know, and that's why I voted for him. You know, one of the reasons that I think he has the best chance and I genuinely hope for the you know, for the better of American citizens that his presidency does lead to a unified person. I don't think it's going to be like ever like, oh, it's a single party now, you know, hundred, every bill is just being casted, like 90% of acceptance. Obviously there's still going to be like contention and stuff, but just bills get passed on things that like, I think majority of both sides agree on, you know, environment, majority of both sides agree, agree on, you know, um, things like that where both sides can like, you know, gun like, gun control specifically just like background checks improved background checks not necessarily more just like improved background check you know mental health care facilities rehabilitation centers trying to reduce the uh, war on drugs like i think these there's situations where both sides agree on and i think getting at least those things passed would be like a great to a great benefit to american citizens yeah and i will give you this much i think that joe biden does have every opportunity available to be this unifying figure, because it looks like by all available evidence, uh, Republicans are going to be taking the Senate, which Mm -hmm. people were saying that's not going to happen. There was like, I think uh, Washington Post or some place gave it a Mm -hmm. 76% chance that Democrats were going to take the Senate. Uh, There are two runoff elections, I think, as you know, in Georgia that are going to occur in early January that should determine it. But if Republicans win just one of those two, then Republicans will take the Senate. So I think that he does have every opportunity available to be a unifying figure to try and, uh, you know, get both sides together. A question of whether it happens or not is where we disagree. But I think uh, 
well, yeah, we'll just have to see. Uh, I actually, out. I actually agree with you. I think there's not a good chance. I actually agree with you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a good chance. Of course, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that naive. I just think like he has the best chance compared to others. But like you know, two percent isn't that better than one percent. That's kind of where I stand. I don't think it's two percent exactly. I'm just saying like, relatively, it's not a good chance at all. I agree. It's a, it's a very low chance in the dark. But you're right. He does have the resources, and he does have the, you know, um. I've worked with Republicans, I've worked with Democrats. He said all those things, but again, like, I guess we can't really know anything until the end of, like, 2021. I think that's when things will really start clearing up. Yeah, and I think it's also going to be a question of uh, where exactly the Republican Party goes after Trump. Because... Um, oh, that's a big question. I agree Yeah, because there were a lot of people I, I know on Fox News, which um, made me cringe a little bit. I might get criticized by people on the right, but it made me cringe. People on Fox News were saying, oh, well, Trump is going to run maybe in 2024, you know? And, um, uh, you know, it's just not particularly where I would want the Republican Party to go if it goes more swings towards where I am, towards uh, around Mitt Romney. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I think that that'll be a big factor in whether or not the country, you know, comes together in a better way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all the time we have. We're already overshot a little. But first of all, thank you so much for coming into the podcast. It's a very interesting and genuinely so informing to hear like different viewpoints and learning. So first of all, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I know uh, we said this off air, but I would like to say it on air for a little bit. Um, I just really appreciate what you're doing. And I think it's Mm -hmm. an important thing, especially on a college campus, you know, to make sure that both (laughs) sides are heard and that it's really important. And I think this this is an important point that I would like to drive home is that both sides have logical and reason and reasonable arguments. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that gets ignored on both sides of the aisle is that, you know, the other side is somehow stupid or just uneducated that they that they just don't look at data. And, you know, the answer is both sides do look at the data and it's just a question of whether or not they're interpreting it in a certain way or not, you know, whether right. or not it, it um, follows in with their ideology. So I, I think that it's really an important thing that you're doing and I really appreciate it. Right. Uh, I, pre- I appreciate the love, man. I, I'm a podcast super small, but hopefully, you know, I can grow it a little. But again, thank you so much for coming and thank you for everybody who's listening. I really appreciate it. We actually broke 100 listens total listens very recently which like is very surprising because i thought only my couple of my friends listened to it so it's like a big deal for me but um thank you guys so much for listening and i'll catch you guys next week on the sixth episode see ya